Cairo, Seattle. It's time to get schooled with a professor, Sean Clayton. And welcome to Schooled with a Professor. I'll tell you what, it's so strange. It's been a strange year, obviously. And, of course, I mean, this would be the week I would be heading to the Combine. Joel Corey from CBSSports.com would be heading to the Combine. We'd be meeting up with uh, agents and trying to find out all the details of what the collective bargaining agreement is going to have as far as the salary cap. And, of course, today, on, on a Tuesday, this is the first day that you can start to franchise players, and they've got a two-week period for that. So joining us on school is Joel Corey. So, Joel, I mean, this is, again, one of the strangest starts to the off season we can ever see. Oh, no doubt about that. And one of the uh, hidden things that most people don't talk about that's going to be missing this year is with no combine, agents can't get intel or information on who is interested in their free agents and particular price points as readily available as they could since you won't have the quote-unquote tampering going on at the combine. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the reasons agents go. Obviously, they go to babysit their uh, draft-eligible players, and then there's the annual NFLPA agent seminar, which is going to be virtual this year. But agents set up meetings with multiple teams across the league and get a lay of the land on who might be in and out for their free agent clients. Yeah, and that's uh, and it's strange. Now, of course, uh, this week is the start of franchise transition tags, and of course, uh, this is always the week that uh, you know the NFLPA and the NFL usually gets done with its uh, negotiations for the cap. And so here, you can start franchising players, but you don't know exactly what the franchise number is going to be. So, and of course, there's a two-week period now to see about the franchise tag. That's strange. Yeah, because usually by the Friday, uh, the combine, you know the cap's announced. So then you can plug the plug the uh, numbers for the franchise tag in since they're all a percentage of the cap. This year, what we know so far is the cap uh, floor has gone from 175 to 180. A lot of people speculate that the cap won't be any more than 185, which would really roll it back to slightly more than it was. And I think that was 2018 when it was 177.2. But either way... Um, because the cap is going down and the numbers are a percentage of the cap, that the franchise tag numbers across the board will be collectively down anywhere from 8 to 10%. So guys who were franchised last year uh, will go following the 120% raise provision, but the other guys will have reduced numbers compared to what they were last year. Well, if you go back to 2012, which would be the first year that uh, after the lockout, uh, the that was the, the last flat cap, and uh, franchise tags went down 20% in just about every position. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, can it be as much as 20%? Because I've seen some numbers, like, for example, at running backs and tight ends, where their numbers are in the tens going down into the eights. Yeah, well, in 2012, you had the formula change. It used to be very simple. It was the average of the top five salaries, meaning cap numbers, more or less, from the previous year would represent the franchise tag numbers. And then the transition numbers would be average of the top ten. In 2012, you started this convoluted cap percentage average formula where you have to look back five years of how you used to calculate the franchise tags, take that sum, divide it by what the salary cap was, over the previous five years, that's some, and then multiply that percentage by whatever the cap is. So that's why they dropped. Um, 
So you're not going to see that big of a drop, but um, some positions like running back have been going down uh, for the past couple of years anyway, even though the cap's gone up because of the five-year thing. Like Le'Veon Bell was $12.12 million when he was tagged the first time. Derrick Henry was 10.278 last year. Now the running back number is going to be in the 8-5 range, and it was going to be in the 9-3, range if the cap had stayed flat. So that's one in particular which has been impacted by this whole five-year five average thing. Yeah, no doubt. And, of course, uh, tight ends, I think, are affected. Uh, doesn't seem to be too bad for cornerbacks. Looks like they may just go down about $2 million. Yeah, and every little bit helps uh, if you're thinking about franchising someone. And since the cap is going down, I don't think you're going to see 14 players franchised like they were last year. It's because some teams, like the Saints, if they wanted to franchise Trey Hendrickson, they're having a hard enough time getting under the cap to even think about putting a tag on someone. And then the Rams, once the Jarrett Goff, uh, Matthew Stafford trade goes through, the trade is going to add $7.25 million to their cap because they've got all that residual dead money from Goff plus taking on um, Stafford's salary. So John Johnson uh, tagging him is going to be difficult as well. Yeah, because I, I mean, they, they have $42.2 million dollars uh, tied up in the salary for Matthew Stafford and the dead money for Jared Goff. And, you know, the, and the more we see some of these trades uh, for quarterbacks on big contracts, there's going to be a lot of teams, particularly in the NFC, that's carrying a lot of dead money. Oh, no doubt about that. And the, and the crazy one is I never thought in a million years that the Philadelphia Eagles would be willing to carry uh, $33.82 million of dead money for Carson Wentz. <laughs> that's like the fifth biggest cap number in the league, and that's someone who's not on, on their roster. But they decided to make the trade, and he's now an Indianapolis Colts. So that's one in particular. The Rams don't have an aversion to dead money because prior to this year, the biggest individual dead money charge was from Brandon Cooks last, for this league year, which is ending on March 17th, $21.8 million. Now they've got golf at 22.2. So those two teams in particular, when the cap is going down, your workable cap space is less because you've got so much devoted to a guy not there on the roster. Yeah, and of course, one of the big problems with dead money, and this goes back to 2013, if you have more than 20.4% tied up in dead money, you don't make the playoffs. Now, this may be an exception this year because you're going to have more teams with more dead money. So now somebody can kind of sneak in maybe as a wild card. But you, know, you, you see teams like New Orleans and Philadelphia, maybe uh, Atlanta, having such big cap numbers that are going to be on dead money that it's really going to uh, you know, cause a big impact. Yeah, I think that the Eagles are probably in a rebuilding mode. The Rams are in a win-now mode. They got to the playoffs uh, last season, so they're thinking Stafford's an upgrade. Their window is short, so they're going to do everything possible in a very competitive division to try to get back to the playoffs. Uh, the Saints are an interesting case. Um, I imagine Drew Brees is going to retire, even though as a formally announced it. You don't take your base salary from $25 million down to your league minimum of $1.075 million unless you were planning on retiring. The reason that was done was so they could split the dead money over two years. That the proration from the future years wouldn't hit the cap this year if you carry them on the roster until June 2nd and then 
um, decide to put him on the reserve retired list at that point in time because they picked up $23.925 million of immediate cap space from that maneuver. So that suggests retirement. So Sean Payton's going to have to do probably one of his better coaching jobs, most likely either Taysom Hill or Jameis Winston as his quarterback next season. You were an agent for 16 years, and uh, how would you advise your, <clears throat> your clients as far as uh, you know what to expect in free agency? Because you know, except with a few exceptions, I can't imagine a lot of the top free agents getting their true value because, again, the cap is going to be so tight. Well, one thing you have to do as an agent is be candid with your clients. You don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. So I would always try to paint as realistic of a picture as possible. And part of the thing you do is gather intel at the combine, which won't be happening this year. So agents might not have that same piece of information like they would in the past. But I would advise guys that, prepare them that the market may not be what you think it would be unless you are a marquee free agent. And I think the marquee guys get paid regardless. If you look at what happened with some of the extensions, David Bakhtiari reset the tackle market from Larry Mutunsel uh, right after the uh, cap floor was set. Joey Bosa uh, becomes the highest paid defensive player in league history. So those guys get paid. I think you'll see a lot of guys who decide to do one-year deals because the first wave of free agency is going to be smaller and shorter than it would be in most years. And this may be like 2012, where the cap barely went up. You had like the Peyton Mannings, the Carl Nixons of the world get paid. And then you had some guys take one-year deals and try to get, get it the next year when um, there was more of an increase in the cap and if the TV money hits next year. Uh, the deals are done, then maybe things start to get more back to normal, and you bet on yourself this year and then go from there uh, next year. Yeah, and of course, but one of the problems for teams now, I mean, if you do the one-year deals, and I can see maybe you do a one-year deal with avoidable option or something like that, is that you know it's going to eat up money quick. Because I went through last year in unrestricted free agency, and uh, there there was but maybe, I don't know, uh, 23 contracts that uh, you know got 10 plus million dollars and I would imagine that uh, and of course and as you mentioned if the cap is going to be around 180 you know that's 2018 levels in that year there was 155 10 million dollar a year contracts where last year it finished at a 209 and right now it's about at 180 which means that you have a lot of 10 million dollar contracts released and not a lot added. Yeah, you have to see voidable years because if the cap going down, if you're going to do the one, it's going to be maybe a one masquerading as a three, or it's going to void at some point maybe 23, 22 days before the 22-week year starts or right before the 22-week year starts, and then they're going to have some residual cap charges or dead money depending upon how big of a signing bonus. I think you're going to see that um, come into play more so this year than you have in past years. I'm, I'm, what I'm wondering about, and that's why I was hoping that something gets done soon on J.J. Watt, is to determine what happens to the players in their mid-30s, past the age of 32. Because even going back last year when the cap rose more than $10 million uh, in unrestricted free agency, you know, and Dominican Sue got the biggest contract uh, for a, a mid-30 player at one year, $8 million. I'm wondering how many of the guys who are in their mid-30s, like a K.J. Wright, for example, I mean, are they going to have to take less than $8 million in some kind of a deal to get done? 
Well, KJ Wright yesterday said, I'm not taking a hometown discount to stay in Seattle because I do too much. It may turn out that Seattle is his best bet because of his age, even though he did play really well um, in 2020. So those guys are probably going to get squeezed. If I have a guy who the team asked to take a pay cut, I'm probably going to take it because I don't want to be in the open market for a simple economic equation that there's going to be a huge amount of supply. Demand's not going to be what it would be in a normal year, so it is going to be a buyer's market. And if I can stay put and hopefully have a chance to make up the money I've lost through my play in incentives, I would recommend the client do that. A guy like Kyle Rudolph talks about how I don't want to take a pay cut. I don't like my role. I'm too much of a blocking tight end. You're on the wrong side of 30. You're not as productive as you used to be, maybe because you don't get the opportunity as a receiver as much as you were because of Irv Smith Jr., but you don't want to be on the open market as a tight end in, in that scenario if I'm Kyle Rudolph, so maybe he should reconsider that stance, and if Minnesota is going to be reasonable, take the pay cut. Yeah. Carlos Dunlap, of course, uh, did a great job for Seattle since coming over in the trade from Cincinnati, really opened up the pressure on the defensive line. You know, and his He's scheduled in the last year of his contract to make over $13 million. How much of a pay cut do you think he would have to take you know, either in the open market or if Seattle, because obviously Seattle wants to keep him. I mean, could he come down to six or seven million a year? Uh, he'd do one before that, even though he's older. Um, he's probably going to try to, I would think, stay in Seattle and try to be a double digit guy per year on the average on a two, three year deal. But that's one where if uh, they can't figure something out, it may be a case where he has to see the grasses and greener on the other side, and then he'll come back more on what Seattle's terms are. Because that used to happen a long time ago when the TV deals were you would uh, get the huge increase in one year, have a huge jump in the cap instead of smoothing it in, and the cap would barely go up year to year. You'd see guys who would not take a pay cut and then go in the open market, and the team would – welcome them back at their terms after they saw that things weren't what they thought they would be. And if you are a savvy agent, you know that going in because you do a survey of the lay of the land, which is actually tampering, find out what everything would be before you make the decision to reject the pay cut. Yeah. Now, two candidates uh, for the franchise tag in Seattle is Shaquille Griffin at cornerback, Chris Carson at running back. Do you see anything happening of one of those two getting the franchise tag? And if so, which one? Uh, I wouldn't put one on Griffin, two up and down. He was erratic last year. Uh, played much better in 2019 than 2020. And I have a feeling that he's one of these guys that will overprice himself and may not get the money that he expects. I would not put a franchise tag on him, considering he's going to be in the $15 million neighborhood. Now, Carson, I would be reluctant to want to pay what he probably wants, which is the $12, $13 million per year that the running back's machine you can get right before uh, the regular season started and during training camp and, and the preseason. If he can stay healthy, yes, but durability is a concern for him. So I'm letting him hit the open market. I might consider the transition tag on him because that's going to be right around $7.2 $7. and then let the market decide and go from there. But uh, I think if he gets to the open market, He's a guy who's going to be a little surprised at the lack of interest um, at the type of money that he may want. 
Yes, because say what you want, you could even go back to last year, <laughs> the highest paid running back that went to another team, and we're not talking about re-signs like Christian McCaffrey or Derrick Henry or anybody like that, was Melvin Gordon, who got a two-year deal at eight, $16 million, $8 million a year. And the top two running backs this year, Aaron Jones is one, and you figure he might get the franchise tag. Uh, and, you know, you've got Chris Carson, number two. I mean, you know, is it possible that both guys out there may not be able to get $8 million plus? Uh, that should be a realistic target for Carson. He still may not get it, so he could end up yeah. back in Seattle. My understanding is that um, the Packers had already offered uh, Jones over $10 million per year. The problem is Jones doesn't like how Green Bay structures contracts if you're not named Aaron Rodgers because there's not the same guaranteed money there is every place else. The only true guaranteed money is a signing bonus. They have unsecured roster bonuses in year two and year three. And you're still vulnerable, as Nick Perry found out a couple of years ago. Uh, a running back I'm interested to see how he does is playoff winning. Because Leonard Fournette was basically the backup to, to Ronald Jones during the regular season. Jones's injuries allowed him to flourish in the playoffs. But still, he's a running back. I don't think he comes back to Tampa because he's probably not at the top of their list of re-signings. I would try to get the Melvin Gordon money someplace, if not – Maybe do a one-year deal if you can get the Todd Gurley five, six million dollars on a one, and put yourself in the best opportunity you can to try to showcase yourself for 2022. Yeah, because of course what you're looking at with him is, I mean, he would be a candidate, I would think, for Seattle if they can't keep Chris Carson because uh, he's a big back and a powerful back. Oh yeah, no doubt about that. That's a guy who I think would be perfect for uh, Seattle and a guy I would keep my eye on for Seattle. He's damaged goods because of a week one Achilles injury. But Marlon Mack is a 1,000-yard back. And he's a guy that uh, they already found his replacement in Indianapolis with Jonathan Taylor. I don't think he'd want to go back knowing that he's not going to have the opportunity to really uh, prove, prove it in, a, in what will be a, a one-year prove-it deal for him. So maybe he's a guy you'll get very cheap, load him up with incentives based on how he does. And I would monitor the Seattle situation if I'm Marlon Mack. Okay, Joel Corey, of course, thanks for joining us here on Schooled with a Professor. What do you have on CBSSports.com and your podcast? Well, I'm writing an article um, sometime today on Dak Prescott's situation and what I would do if I'm Dak Prescott. And to me, Jerry Jones has already conceded that Dak has all the leverage. I would rake Dallas over the coals for making me wait. And if there's going to be a deal done, particularly before the franchise tag deadline on March 9th, which I'm not anticipating, I have to win every major deal point. Otherwise, that $37 million on the tag would be very appealing. And then we could probably be in a Kirk Cousins Part 2 situation. Wow. Joel Corey, thanks for joining us on Schooled with the Professor. Thanks for having me, and that does it for this week's podcast. In between episodes, you can follow me on Twitter at Clayton ESPN. If you enjoy these weekly one-on-one conversations, consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Schooled with the Professor.